Hi, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Wherever you find us, whether it's a video or podcast on your favorite platform, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. You can also find us on major social media platforms. If you go to MiamiGhostChronicles.com, you can find links to the videos or MP3 files, which you can download and enjoy without commercial interruptions. If you're into classic horror, ghost, and adventure stories, I narrate Nightshade Diary, and you can find links at NightshadeDiary.com. If scary stories are your bag, and listening to encounters with cryptids, ghosts, dogmen, and other weird creatures sends a shiver up your spine, then go to SupernaturalStoryTime.com for links to our weekly podcasts. Noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird can be found at eerie.news or visit the Stranger Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Please subscribe to my newsletter on Substack. Just go to mppelliser.com for a link. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody, and this is Mysteries of Old Florida, Volume 3, and I have a lot of interesting stories that date back from those years. The first one is in April of 1903, and a title, Who Hated Roland? Mr. Roland B. Morgan traveled from Elgin, Illinois, with his wife and her mother to winter in their country residence named Albay, situated about five miles across the bay from Pensacola on the Santa Rosa County Peninsula. He owned about 60 acres there. Now, prior to this, he had already disposed of hundreds of acres to parties from up north. Only 40 years before, at this same site, Union sailors and Marines destroyed the ship Judah, which was a Confederate ship under modification at the Pensacola Navy Yard. Union and Confederate forces squared off in a battle in a growing civil war. But now, all was calm, and the Morgans were planning to live here permanently. Morgan, for many years, had been a foreman at the Elgin Watch Factory, and then in Florida was involved in the coal business with the C.N. Russell Company. It was the spring of 1903 when he picked up a small square box at the post office from a company called Hammond's Foods. He went home, and inside was half a pound of what was described as breakfast food. He stirred a spoonful into a saucer. His wife and mother-in-law tasted it and spat it out because it was so bitter. They warned him about the taste, but he waved them away and took a swallow. Fifteen minutes later, his agony ended in death. His wife and her mother also came close to death, but survived. The coroner's jury was still pending when Morgan's body was interred on his estate. Within a few days, Morgan's brother-in-law, Charles E. Wilcox, arrived in Pensacola from Chicago. He had the body disinterred. The body was viewed by the coroner's jury at Northup and Woods Undertakers. Morgan's remains were said to be in a very bad state. A lifelong friend said the man was unrecognizable. His torso, even after so short of time, was blackened and decomposed. He also displayed rictus sardonicus, an unfailing indication of strychnine poison. Due to the suspicion of poisoning, samples from his stomach were sent to Chicago and New York for an expert verification of what had killed the man. Local chemists also examined the stomach contents. When the contents in the box were tested, it was ascertained there was enough poison to kill a dozen men. At one corner of the box, there was a small hole as though the package had been crushed in the mail. 
a story was circulated that a local newspaper man found a postcard written by a man who was said to be on bad terms with Morgan. A comparison was made of the handwriting on the package and the card, and they were similar. However, the postmarks on the package were indistinct. Within days, the story was discounted. It took a month before results came back from Morgan's tissue samples and what came in the box from Chicago. Professor John H. Long from Northwestern University confirmed that strychnine in large quantities was found in the food and the stomach contents of Roland Morgan. The mystery deepened as Morgan was said not to have any known enemies. He was a popular man with many friends. Prior to this, Morgan had on many occasions received samples of prepared food through the mail. Had someone poisoned the contents not knowing who would eat it? Or had it been planned by someone who knew he frequently received this type of sample in the mail? Morgan's wife stayed living at the home where her husband had died. She had already endured tremendous heartache when the couple had lost two daughters, Nellie and Katie, within one day of each other in 1881 due to scarlet fever. By 1920, she had moved back to Elgin, Illinois and lived with her brother Charles Wilcox and his daughter Sarah Krieger and her son Charles. She outlived her brother and in the 1940 census at the age of 91 she was still living in the same home with her niece. She never remarried. The mystery of who poisoned her husband Roland remained unsolved. Not only who, but why. Our next story is titled The Murderous Thieves. On June 5, 1904, Maddie E. Carlisle's body was found lying under her bed. Both her eyes were bruised, her right arm, side, and leg were a mass of black and blue bruises. Her lower extremities were swollen. Two young women who resided in the same house located at 117 West Church Street returned from their work and they found the front door locked, which was unusual since they rented a room at the house. Once inside, they couldn't find Mrs. Carlyle, their landlady, and they called police. A search was made, but nothing was found. The girls suspected something was wrong, and they spent the night with a neighbor. The following day, after they both returned from their work as stenographers, Mrs. Carlyle was still missing. They called the authorities once more. Detective James E. Crawford came to the home and found the back door unlocked. He went to Mrs. Carlyle's bedroom and found what police missed the first time. It was the dead woman underneath her bed. A quilt had been pulled from the foot of the bed, which reached to the floor and hid the body. An initial examination of the body by physicians clarified that the bruises did not cause her death. There was no sign of a struggle in the room, and the cause of death was not clear. Initially, the motive was also in question since money, $160 worth of it, was found in the closet of a room and two diamond rings were on the dresser. Maddie Carlyle was the widow of Joseph Carlyle, a music teacher, and since the death of her husband, she had made a business of renting furnished rooms to tourists during the winter season. Until recently, her house had been full, but with the coming of spring, it had emptied out and only the two girls were left. On June 9, 1904, the coroner's jury found that Mrs. Carlyle came to her death at the hands of a party or parties unknown. Officially, it was now considered a murder case. Within a week of the crime, Clarence M. Carroll offered a reward of $500 for the arrest with evidence to convict the murderer of his mother. 
It seemed that a double case watch connected with a long neck chain that Mrs. Carlyle was known to carry could not be found. He insisted his mother was murdered and on discrediting the theory proposed by the doctors that she died of uremic seizure. She was 52 years old. He said, I know also that it was a kind of hobby of hers to keep an amount of gold in the house. Up until the time I left home, she kept a number of gold pieces in the house. This probably amounted to as much as 200 or $300. It is possible that she had deposited this money and that this amount is included in her bank account. I cannot say as to that. Another circumstance connected with her death is the fact that no change was found in her pocketbook and that the only money found was that which was concealed in a laundry bag. My mother paid cash for everything. It was a habit of her life. She thought it more satisfactory in every way. Under the circumstances, it seems probable that she would have had some money easily accessible for the payment of her bills, particularly as it was Saturday. I am compelled to scout the idea of a natural death. My mother never complained of feeling unwell. She worked hard, and I often tried to get her to come up and visit me for a rest, but she never said anything of feeling unwell, and I cannot believe that under the circumstances her death was a result of natural causes. Mrs. Carlyle had planned and built the house herself, earning the money with her needle, which she did until the time of her death when she was sewing a bride with her dress. After the initial flush of stories that appeared across the country, the story disappeared from mention. If a suspect or a clue had been found, it would have been printed, but the absence of any story indicates that the murder of Maddie Carlyle was never solved, and much less who it was and what was the motive. But it does appear that whoever did it was pretty familiar with what she kept in that house. The next story is titled The Murder of Ada Wells. And this occurred in the last days of July 1902. And at that time, the body of Ada Wells, who lived in a house she rented from Captain Rice, situated just south of the Grandview Hotel building in Titusville, was found lifeless on her cot. Families living nearby heard screams during the previous Saturday night, but no one went to investigate. The next day was observed that no one appeared to be moving about the house as usual. A search was made, and she was found in the front room. She had been choked to death and had finger marks on her throat. There was also a bruise behind the right ear. One upper front tooth was broken loose and pressed forward, indicating she bit her assailant, and when the person pulled away, it pulled the tooth outward. It was evident there had been a struggle on the ground outside the door, which would account why the victim had wood ashes clinging to her head and her right eye. Someone had picked up the body and carried it into the house, placing it on the cot. The left arm had blood on it and her mouth was full of blood. She was last seen alive on Saturday around 11 p.m. when she had bought a half pint flask of gin and headed home. It is stated she was seen talking with a man not far from her house about this time of night. The murder was a mystery as there appeared to be no motive for killing her. Quote, she was a harmless sort of person, had no money that is known of, and at times was given to be demented. End quote. It was estimated she had become involved in a drunken row with her assailant, and he killed her without meaning to. The coroner, Mr. B. R. Wilson and Sheriff Brown, were called and jurymen were impaneled to investigate the crime. The jurymen viewed the body, the surroundings, and returned a verdict that Ada Wells came to her death at the hand of parties to the jury unknown.
A little over a month later, Sheriff Brown arrested Luli Smith, Albert Willis, and Ben Watson on evidence that pointed that at least two of them were involved in the Wells case. Kept apart, they told conflicting stories. The preliminary hearing started on October 1902, accused Rebel Skinner and Albert Willis. By December 1902, it was over. Bell Skinner was convicted of murder in the first degree with recommendation for mercy. She was sentenced to life imprisonment. Albert Willis, convicted of manslaughter, received a sentence of 20 years. The evidence in the case was described as circumstantial, but proved that the murder was committed through jealousy. The two women were prostitutes, and Bell Skinner was the art conspirator in the killing. Willis's confession was used extensively in the trial. Surprisingly, Bell was married when she killed Ada. She'd immigrated from Canada and had been married for 10 years to William Skinner. Albert, on his part, had married Mamie Davis in May of 1902, only two months before the murder. Six months later, it was noted that Bell Skinner was removed from the Monroe Turpentine Farm, south of Titusville, and taken to Ocala due to her failing health. Turpentine farms of those years used convict labor, and the work was known to be brutal. In 1910, she was still at the State Convict Hospital in Ocala, Florida. Bell was then 48 years old. What became of Albert is unknown. However, his wife Mamie died in 1918 and was buried at the Florida State Hospital Cemetery. This hospital was an asylum for the insane. Captain Rice, who had rented the house to Ada Wells, died in 1904. The next story is titled, Who Killed Poison Dick Number 244-948? This is January 8, 1940, Key West, Florida. In the coroner, Enrique Esquinaldo Jr. said the man had committed suicide. The man in question was tied to a rock and covered with mud. He was about 35 years old and found at the bottom of a saltwater swimming pool off the northern branch of Roosevelt Boulevard. This was a popular spot that only in 1938 was reported as being used for Girl Scout meetings and fish fries. Dr. William R. Warren, the city health officer, autopsied the body at Pritchard's funeral home. The fingerprints were sent to the FBI. The body was found by Silvio Carrera, a WPA watchman. It was floating face downward in the pool near the diving platform. At that moment, a Parks dairy truck was passing by and Ike Parks, the driver, stopped when he heard Carrera shout, Here's a dead man! Parks ran to where he was and turned the body over. It revealed the man had been dead probably from three to five days. The feet and hands had been tied with green cords. Hanging from the hands and a cord around the man's waist was a dog collar looped through the man's belt. The belt encircled a small rock that did not appear heavy enough to hold the body on the bottom of the pool. It could not have floated in from the bay as the intakes into the pool were screened. Laundry marks on the cheap trousers he wore were checked by the Columbia Laundry Company, but no record of it was found there. A coroner's jury was taken to the swimming pool and the Justice of the Peace reconstructed the scene. As a group was standing around the pool, a couple with a child approached the jury, curious to know the reason for the gathering. Justice Esquinaldo asked a man named Alex Jungmarker certain questions, and he said they had been swimming at the pool two days before. He asked if the man had lost a sweater. He said yes. A sweater found there was taken, believed to have belonged to the dead man, but now that clue was no longer relevant. 200 persons paid a visit to the street morgue at Pritchard's funeral home and viewed the remains. 
This included city officials who said he was not a Key Wester. There was nothing to identify the man except a note in his wallet bearing this information, Poison Dick number 244-948. Besides this, he was wearing a cheap watch and carried a knife in his pocket. The coroner thought perhaps the man was a former convict. The man had been in the water several days. Despite scores of swimmers using the pool, no one had reported having seen it. They were ignorant that only a few feet from them a dead man floated in the water. By January 11th, the police prepared a description of the man and the clothes he was wearing with hopes of identifying him. It read, About 33 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, weight about 160 pounds, reddish hair, gray eyes, wire gray worsted trousers with a thin brown stripe, light gray shirt with a red and white stripe, a blue-gray tie, plain black shoes with an English toe, size C8. Laundry marks in the trouser pockets included M13154X731HV and 21570. Laundry marks on the underdoors and shirts were TBB, the size being size 15. In a wallet was found a note bearing the words and numerals Poison Dick 244948. Any information regarding such a man should be transmitted to Hamlin, the Sheriff's Office, or Peace Justice Enrique Esquinaldo, Jr. Sheriff Roy Hamlin was informed that a man who formerly roomed with Mr. and Mrs. Millen Roberts at 702 Pearl Street had disappeared. Mrs. Roberts was the one who identified the body as being Hatch. The mystery seemed to be solved when the body was identified as Henry D. Hatch, Jr., by six local citizens. He was reported missing since the prior week. He had worked as a bellhop at the Trumbo Hotel. However, that theory was upended when Mr. Hatch arrived at the office of Justice Esquinaldo. He explained he had enlisted in the U.S. Army on January 1st in the 13th Coast Artillery and was stationed at the Key West Barracks. His poor mother, who lived in Hamlet, North Carolina, was notified of his death. A new message was sent to her telling her that her son was alive. Hatch denied he knew the dead man. Officer Hamlin spent January 14th questioning fishermen and other residents, hoping someone could identify the body. He'd heard that a fisherman who had been in Key West a few days before the body was found was missing. However, it turned out the man was alive. The hands and feet of the body were tied with a green fishing line. Also in the pockets was another line of the same kind, and a rubber purse such as fishermen carry and a fisherman's knife. The FBI informed the authorities that no record of the prints were on file in Washington. Confusion as to the identity could be due to the fact the body was bloated and certain facial characteristics were obscured. Those who had identified him as hatched tried to renege on their words, claiming the condition of the body was misleading. Despite the suspicion that it was suicide, there was no water found in the lungs, pointing to the theory that he was killed and then dumped in the pool. On January 18, 1940, a coroner's jury determined the body of an unidentified man, about 50 years old, whose body was found bound and covered with mud in a swimming pool here January 8th, had been slain. The verdict said death was due to suffocation, strangulation, or asphyxiation. An observation made in a local newspaper was, quote, Men can slip out of the picture easily, unknown, forgotten, living or dead as a pebble on the beach.
end quote. Nine months later, the bullet-riddled body of a swarthy-complexioned man was found floating in Card Sound in Key Largo. He was identified as a former Pennsylvania convict and New York parole violator. This was verified after the FBI compared his fingerprints and confirmed his name was Leon Massey, 41, of Erie, Pennsylvania. Authorities believed he was hunted down by New York gunmen at some hideout in the Florida Keys south of Miami. At the end of October 1940, the jury was expected to return a true bill for the man found in January and the other one found in September in the waters off Card Sound. In November, that same jury in Key West had abandoned the case against Carl Tanzier Van Kossel, who'd unearthed the body of Marielena Hoyos from her grave and kept it in his home for various years. This same jury reported it had been unable to determine the circumstances by which the man found in the saltwater pool in January met his death. It's assumed that during those months the man was probably given a burial in a potter's field somewhere in Key West, probably in the Key West Cemetery. In July of 1941, Ishmael Lee Davis, 24, of Winslow, Indiana, dived into the Roosevelt Boulevard swimming pool and broke his neck when he struck a rock in the bottom. He was taken to Marine Hospital where he died. He was a first-class seaman at the Key West Naval Station Air Base. Perhaps it was the discovery of the murdered man in January 1940 and the death in July of 1941 of Ishmael Davis that caused the popularity of the pool to wane. By 1949, title to the Roosevelt Boulevard swimming pool area was sold to the city by the state with a stipulation the area would be for the public's use. The Business and Professional Women's Club began to rehabilitate the pool. The area had been abandoned for many years. In 1951, they were reported sponsoring a fashion show tea to be held at Casa Marina Hotel to raise proceeds for the restoration, which never took place and the pool was never reopened. Who was the man dumped in the pool? Key West in the 1940s was an island where most residents were known to someone or another. If he had been part of the Navy, he would have come up a wall. However, it seems that he might have been a fisherman based on the few belongings he had. The fact that his fingerprints were not found in the FBI database confirms that one, he was not a convict, or two, that he might have been an immigrant. He possibly might have arrived from Cuba to live in Key West, which had a large Cuban community. As it stands, who he was, who killed him, and why remains a mystery. The next story is titled The Scandalous Dr. Waite Novel. Frederick Leon Tiff Waite Novel, an immigrant from Russia, arrived in Tampa around 1885 and set up shop as a doctor who treated feminine complaints. He was also an abortionist who on the side peddled his own brand of hair tonic. He was a tall man with a full head of hair who was known as a libertine and hedonist. Waite Novel was no stranger to controversy. In 1887, the International Medical Congress described him as a Polish man with dark complexion, long kinky hair, and shaggy eyebrows. He dressed eccentrically as well. He was barred admission because he violated the ethics of the profession by putting his portrait on his calling cards. In 1896, he became a squatter in a portion of Tampa known as the Reservation, which was owned by Lizzie Carew. The place had once been a garrison. She had brought the problem to the courts that decided in her favor. However, Dr. Waite Novel, along with other squatters, organized a meeting to incorporate the area into a town named Moscow and to elect him as mayor. 
With approval of Waite Novel as the mayor, scores of squatters representing many nationalities took possession of the property, living in filthy hovels and huts. They were thrown out after several months. By 1896, Dr. Waite Novel had still not been granted a certificate to practice medicine by the board in Florida, and he decided to sue one of the doctors on the board. However, this did not stop him from practicing his own type of medicine and calling himself a doctor. However, there was one incident that Dr. Waitnowell could not wiggle out of. In June 1902, an 18-year-old girl died under mysterious circumstances at his apartment, which doubled as his office, at 210 Whiting Street. He was arrested on a charge of manslaughter. Dr. Waitnowell's practice was described by a local newspaper as, quote, what has long been regarded as the most infamous den of criminal malpractice that ever flourished in a respectable community. The previous day, Captain Carter of the police department was told the corpse was being moved from Dr. Waitnowell's apartment. Upon arrival, he found that it was a young woman and that she had already been given over to the care of undertaker J.L. Reed. Dr. Waitnowell had made out the death certificate. She was identified as Irene Randall of Quincy, Florida. Her father was A.A. Randall, who owned a large tobacco business located between Quincy and Midway. The girl had come to Tampa seven months before to learn dressmaking from her aunt, Laura J. Christian. Captain Carter found out that Irene Randall had returned to Tampa without her family's knowledge. Upon her arrival, she went to Dr. Waitnowell's establishment on Whiting Street. Something happened that caused him to call in another doctor the day before her death. However, there was nothing he could do for her. The cause of death on the certificate was listed as perionitis. Undertaker Reed said the body was badly contorted. Captain Carter ascertained that the girl had gone to Wait Novel's establishment for an abortion. She had told a friend in which she named a well-known young man of the city as the father of her child. His name was Robert Floyd. He denied that he was the one to ruin the Randall girl. Her body was sent to Quincy for burial and the authorities requested an autopsy to be completed. It was noted that Waite Novel advertised himself as a specialist in diseases of women, but his practice was always conducted in a very quiet manner. Police also took possession of his books, records, and letters which provided evidence of previous violations. Amy Drody, who owned the notorious house on Fifth Avenue where it was alleged Floyd took Irene to seduce her, denied the entire incident. She was not happy that she was getting so much attention. There was a letter written to Floyd by Irene Randall detailing her anguish of her betrayal at his hands and placing their place of assignation as Amy Drody's house on Fifth Avenue. She said she was taken by force and drugged into semi-consciousness. The letter was sealed and stamped but never mailed. The letter was found among White Novel's papers. Another letter indicated that Irene's parents knew where she was and what treatment she was receiving. Attorney Cohen, who represented Waite Novel, said that the girl was treated by a doctor at Quincy and sent to Waite Novel to await the effects of the treatment and to avoid inquiries close to where she lived. While awaiting his preliminary hearing, Waite Novel had a valet who attended him. His food was purchased for him and prepared by the jail chef. He had a comfortable cot, changes of clothing, and a large fan which he used continuously. He would argue with reporters. One described it as, quote, He puffed up like an angry toad, swung his arms wildly in the air, and discharged several volleys of furred objurgations. He would roar, No one except my attorney can interview me. 
while beating his chest. Judge Robles was presiding over the trial, and Colonel Hugh C. McFarlane was engaged to prosecute the doctor. John P. Wall was representing Robert Floyd, who would be tried separately. Two of the most important witnesses were Dr. U.S. Byrd and J.M. Grantham, who performed the autopsy. Dr. B.G. Abernathy attended Irene before she died and from her own lips heard her sad story. On the day of the hearing, Dr. Wade Novel attended dressed in an immaculate suit and carrying a palm leaf fan, which he was known for always carrying with him. Dr. Abernathy testified at the preliminary hearing, quote, I went to see Irene Randall at the urgent request of Will Hawley on June 17th. Wade Novel met me at the door and told me the girl had taken heavy medicine and had a miscarriage found her on the bed entirely nude and waving her hands. She said to me, Doctor, I am dying. I am not afraid to die, but I do not want to die so young when I can be of service to my family. I want you to tell me if I am dying. Don't deceive me, because I want to see my mother. I asked the doctor to telegraph her, but I know he has not done so. Promise me that you will do so. That doctor hasn't treated me right. When I returned at six o'clock, he said, she was much worse. When Nowell was very much excited, I gave her all the relief possible. The autopsy disclosed that death was caused by septic periodontitis, resulting from a perceptible injury produced by an instrument. The operation had been done within two weeks of death. Gestation was three months advanced. It confirmed that an abortion had occurred and that an operation had been performed. A neighbor named Frank Middaw testified that on the night of June 17, he was awakened by cries of a woman in distress calling out, Doctor, Doctor. He went to investigate and found the cries came from a darkened room, and in an adjoining room, Wait Nava was sitting with his feet on a table, fanning himself while the cries continued. Another neighbor also heard the cries and Wait Nava telling the patient to be quiet. The undertaker said that Wait Nava had asked for him to remove the body as quietly as possible. The police captain described that when he arrested Wade Novel, he tried to hide a bundle of female underclothing and sheets. The officer took them and found they were stained with blood and medicine. Newspapers weighed in as to whether Wade Novel, who was openly being called an abortionist, would be convicted. Some considered it extremely doubtful since he had, quote, a long list of names of prominent women of the city, end quote, who he treated and that they would exec exert influence to gain his freedom. White Novel had no choice but to remain in jail since he could not pay the $2,000 bond. The trial was scheduled in 1903, but in the meantime it appeared that certain compromising letters had been found among White Novel's papers, including some tied to prominent citizens. Isaac Stewart, a judge in Volusia County's criminal court, had obtained the letters but refused to say how he came into possession of them. He was sentenced to 30 days for contempt of court by a Hillsborough County judge for refusing to disclose his source. He even refused to be sworn in. He claimed he did not have information in the Waite novel case, but in another case of abortion performed at Limona that involved Stetson University. Judge Stewart said that he was brought to Tampa at the instigation of Governor Jennings, whose, quote, hirelings and tools were trying to cover up the corruption which had existed at Stetson University, end quote. Judge Stewart was representing John B. Stetson, the millionaire hat manufacturer who founded Stetson University at the land. Apparently, there had been an alleged illicit relationship between President Forbes of Stetson University and a teacher. 
There were letters written by the woman to Dr. Waitnovel. In January 1903, Frederick L. Waitnovel was found guilty of manslaughter as charged. He was sentenced to six years in the penitentiary. Within a few days, a motion was filed for a new trial, citing errors on the part of the court. In December 1903, he was granted a new trial by the Supreme Court. In January 1904, four citizens stood for $500 each to pay the bond for him to be released from jail, pending the new trial. Fortunes turned against Dr. Waite Nowell even more, and in April 1906, it was noticed he was suffering from heart disease, and he was a charity case at the city hospital. His case was still pending in the criminal court. In May 1906, he died penniless and unmourned. He had suffered a paralytic stroke. It was noted that he had been exiled from Russia to Siberia as a nihilist, but escaped from Siberia and found his way to Tampa. He was buried in Tampa's Woodlawn Cemetery on May 19th by undertaker J.L. Reed. It was said that with his death, many secrets died, which, if made known, would have shaken the social fabric of Tampa. Is this why the second trial was not pursued? Were there those in high stations who feared that Dr. Waite Novel might disclose something if put on the stand? It seemed that he knew about some of the dirtiest laundry many so-called upstanding citizens wanted to keep in the linen closet. There was an unsubstantiated story that described where in 1885 he held the Free Love Society Banquet at a hotel in Ybor City. Invited were over two dozen of Tampa's most sought-after bachelors. On the menu were exotic foods served by women of color who were entirely naked. Tampa citizens were outraged, and for his troubles, Wait Nowell spent the night in jail. As to poor Irene Randall, it seems she doesn't like quiet in her grave. A Tampa ghost tour described where she haunts a brown building once Wait Nowell's office across from the Fort Brooke parking garage. The reason is she knew something was terribly wrong and she was under the impression her mother would come to see her. She died with that wish unfulfilled. The next story is titled The Ghost of Anderson's Corner. On the corner of Southwest 232nd Street and 157th Avenue, Homestead, Florida, sits a two-story building encircled by a chain-link fence. The openings for the windows are boarded up and it dilapidates by degrees. None would guess by its appearance now that over a hundred years ago it served the farmers in the area not only to purchase supplies but a place to trade information. William Anderson was born September 24, 1877. He left Indiana and arrived in Jupiter, Florida in 1898. There he worked in butchering cattle. By 1900 he moved to the Silver Palm area of South Florida and lived with his sister Flora in a small house on Farm Life Road. In 1902 he worked for William Crome, who surveyed for the Florida East Coast Railway for a route to Key West from Miami via Cape Sable. In 1904, the Florida East Coast Railroad founded Helmstead as settlement for the railroad families. Gaston Drake opened the Drake Lumber Mill, which supplied all of South Florida, the Keys and Cuba until 1923 when the lumber gave out. Anderson worked at the mill, running the commissary car at the Skidder Camp, which was in the area in which timber was being cut away from the mill itself. In 1908, Atka Harper, a widow, moved to the area from Palatka, Florida, with her three children, Francis W. Harper, eight, John W. Harper, six, and Annie V. Harper, five, as well as her mother, Elizabeth Newland. She ran the hotel for the lumber company in Princeton. 
William Anderson and Atka Harper married in August of 1912 and decided to go into business for themselves. They purchased five acres for $500 on what became known as Silver Palm Drive, or Southwest 232nd Street. This was a logging road connecting the Everglades to the shipping port of Black Point in South Biscayne Bay. They hired a shipbuilder by the name of Mr. Rawls to build a structure using sturdy Dade County pine. He designed the interior of the upper story like an inverted ship's hull. They named it William Anderson General Merchandise Store. A small grocery store operated on the first level and the family lived on the second floor. The east side of the store sold staples such as beans, flour, sugar, lard, and bacon. The west side had sundries such as men's work clothes and yard goods. Horse and cattle feed, fertilizer, and gardening tools were contained in a lean-to on the west side. Community meetings were held at the schoolhouse across from the store. During those years, he became known as Uncle Will to those who lived in the area. Akka bore William five children in addition to the three she already had. In 1919, Annie Harper was attending the university in Gainesville, and by 1920, only one of Akka's three Harper children still lived in the household, which was Annie. The rest of the household was made up of the five Anderson children, Akka's mother, and William's 80-year-old father. The household was completed by a 25-year-old servant named Samuel Speller. In 1922, 18-year-old Annie married Ansley Grantham, a sergeant in the armed forces who served in France during World War I. However, they divorced in 1925. In 1930, Akka's mother, Elizabeth, and William's father, James, both took falls that resulted in their deaths within a 24-hour period. However, newspaper accounts and court records suggest that all was not well with the Anderson household. Atka filed for divorce from William on April 28, 1936. She moved to a different building on the Anderson property. And coincidentally, this year, part of the building was made into apartments. The United States was still recovering from the Great Depression at that time. Rumors began circulating that William left his wife for his stepdaughter, Annie. After the divorce, Annie moved back into the building. In 1940, she kept house for her stepfather, her two brothers, James and Williams, and her 15-year-old son, George Grantham. She died in September of 1946. William Anderson remained at Anderson's Corner until he died on February 17, 1961, at age 83. Atka Anderson lived in the area until her death in August of 1963. The store was in operation until the mid-1930s. In 1938, J. Edgar Hoover used Anderson's Corner as his headquarters while searching for a criminal who kidnapped a five-year-old child named James Gigi Cash from his home. This was the only crime he personally investigated. Franklin Pierce McCall, 21, a tomato picker and one-time boarder with the Cash family, confessed to kidnapping for ransom and murder of the child. He was executed in the Florida's electric chair in Rayford, Florida in February 1939. Anderson's corner underwent a series of transformation both during and after William Anderson's lifetime. Portions of the building were used as a flop house for migrant workers. In 1970, Anderson's Corner was sold to Mr. and Mrs. James Cothran by Mildred Anderson, and the building was once again converted into an apartment complex. The Cothrans rented two apartments in the old house for $15 per week, and they leased the newer grocery store and gas station next door. In February 1975, it was condemned by the county's housing inspectors. In September 1975, the movie Jonah was filmed on location at Anderson's Corner. It was a film produced by the First Baptist Church of Florida City. 
1977, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Landmarks, which held off the wrecking ball, and the hope was to obtain funds to restore the structure. In 1980, it was sold to a group of investors, and it was finally restored in 1985 and opened as an eatery by Tom Henry. However, by 1986, the bank was foreclosing on it. In 1988, it was known as the Inn at Anderson's Corner and operated by restaurer Dick Hissing. He managed it on a lease from the bank. Tropical fruit farmer Joan Green and chef Mario Martinez bought Anderson's Corner and opened in December of 1991, renaming it to the Harvest House. Nine months later, Anderson's Corner was severely damaged by Hurricane Andrew, and the restaurant went out of business. The property was sold after Green was unable to meet the historical criteria while refurbishing the house. When did it develop its reputation as a haunted house is not known. Was it during the 1970s or even earlier before that? There are unsubstantiated rumors that Annie died from a sleeping pill overdose or a fall from the second floor balcony in 1946. According to Alan Long in his book, Stories from the Haunted South, he detailed the following. A former tenant named Beulah Glenn lived there only two months, but her short stay was long enough to convince her that someone other than she and her family were occupying the downstairs apartment. She said that at night they were frequently awakened by lights that came on by themselves. It was what they heard upstairs, though, that really put their nerves on edge. We heard people screaming and chains were dragging. Nobody else lived upstairs. The door was padlocked, and it was used for storage. My husband would look upstairs, and nobody was there. We thought it might be neighbor kids playing tricks, but we would go outside, and nobody was there. One night, after hearing a girl's voice screaming, Help! Help! Mrs. Glenn decided she had had enough, and the family moved. The haunting continued following the destruction caused by Hurricane Andrew. In January 1994, Scott Strawbridge, a contractor hired by Joan Green, hired two Iroquois Indians, David and Hawk Hawkins, and a few other workers to refurbish the house. During this time, Hawk kept a journal to record his observations. While they were stabilizing the building with shoring, Hawk saw a female apparition in her mid-twenties in the building. He described her as being five feet tall with long, light hair. The workers left after two months but returned in the summer of 1994. In September, Hawk and Dave often felt the presence of someone standing beside them. On December 22nd, the Hawkins brothers were standing near the walkthrough by the kitchen when they heard the sound of a metal pipe being dropped on the floor above. They ran upstairs to investigate and found an iron pipe on the second level subflooring. Both upstairs doors had been nailed shut, making it impossible for someone to sneak inside. A few days later, the brothers heard tapping coming from a mirror. They removed the mirror but found nothing inside the four-inch recess space. Hawk's unsettling feeling about the house intensified over time. On several occasions, he saw a badly beaten woman. He had to fight off a compulsion to kick a ten-ton hydraulic jack onto his brother's head. Walking upstairs, Hawk began to feel what he described in his journal as strong sexual presence. When he entered the bath, he had a vision of a young woman being molested by an older man while she was taking a bath. After the older man left the room, Hawk said he was overcome with a feeling of shame and endless pain. That night, Dave dropped what he was doing and ran outside. Once Dave had regained his composure, he told Hawk they had been chased out of the house by spirits. Realizing that he could no longer work in a building infested with, quote, bad energy, Hawk performed a cleansing ritual. Minutes before he started, Joan Green was driving over to the site to take pictures. 
As she walked through the door, Joan was shocked to find a noose tied to the stair railing and smoke wafting through the building. Hawk explained that he was smudging the structure of spirits. After listening to Hawk's stories about his encounters, Joan showed him an old photograph of the Anderson family. He immediately picked out William and Annie as the two spirits he had seen in the house. Hawk's ceremony seemed to have achieved its purpose. No new occurrences were reported on the site while Joan Green owned Anderson's Corner. Anderson's Corner stands vacant now, a mute relic from Florida's frontier past. But who can say with absolute certainty that Anderson's Corner is really empty?